Uh, good afternoon, everyone, or good evening if you are in Jerusalem. Uh, my name is Nathan Diamond, and I'm the executive director for the Orthodox Union Advocacy Center. And um, we're very pleased today to be joined by uh, our good friend, uh, and in my case, Scandali Mishpatha, uh, Ambassador David Friedman, um, who, uh, as you all know, uh, was the United States ambassador to Israel in the last administration. Uh, David recently published a book uh, entitled Sledgehammer, uh, which is a memoir of his time in that post, um, which was an incredibly impactful tenure. Uh, we're very pleased uh, at, the OU Advocacy at the OU Advocacy Center to have um, partner with David, uh, as we have with um, uh, prior ambassadors and administrations um, for the welfare and security of the state of Israel. Um, and it was a remarkable time, and there's some really uh, great uh, stories and insights in David's new book. Uh, so we're pleased to provide this opportunity for more than 100 of you in OU leadership uh, to hear uh, a little bit of a conversation with David and, uh, and, and some reflections. And I actually think some, some new insights, at least for me, and I'm sure for other readers that came out of this book. Um, so we're going to jump right into a conversation. Hello, David. How are you? How are things in Jerusalem? Hi, Nathan. How are you? Well, things are always uh, special here in Jerusalem, so it's great to be here. Thank you so much. Um, so let, let, me, uh, let me start where you start uh, at the beginning of the book, uh, which is uh, oh, before you became ambassador, obviously, when you first got to know uh, then businessman, not yet president, Donald Trump. Um, and uh, in the course of your describing that, you, you actually write in the book, I wrote this down, uh, that on almost all levels, Donald and I, Donald and you, have nothing in common except devotion to family. Um, and uh, you don't spend a lot of time on this point, but I thought it'd be very interesting for, for the OU audience to hear a little bit more about, you know, how does... What more? What more can you sort of flesh out there? Is coming from, uh, you know, an observant uh, Orthodox Jewish background uh, and engaging in a relationship uh, and building a relationship with, uh, as you say, someone that you did not really have much at all in common with. Well, look, you know, we we had different lifestyles. We had different approaches to um, to life. We had um, different priorities. We had some different values. Um, you know, and uh, you know, uh, I had, uh, I've had, I've had one very, very special wife for uh, forty. I hope I get this right for forty-one years, and um, I think we're approaching forty-two now. And um, uh, you know, uh, live a life of you know, if you, if you live a, and I try to, I don't, I don't pretend to be uh, a paradigm for uh, religious observance, but if you try to hold true to Jewish values. I mean, it's a lifestyle primarily of, uh, of, of faith, of, of family, of study. Uh, it's, uh, although this is sometimes observed in the breach, it's not supposed to be a, uh, a, a you know, a, a lifestyle of, uh, conspicuous consumption. You're not supposed to show off. I mean, some of us do sometimes, but we're not supposed to. And uh, you know, and Donald Trump was a larger-than-life character. He was a, he was always a uh, a showman, a salesman, a entrepreneur, a, uh, a media personality. He had uh, obviously several uh, several marriages to some uh, you know high-profile uh, 
wives, he was always in the news. He, he sought out the attention of uh, with regard to his his lifestyle and what he uh, what he was able to purchase and to consume. And you know, so uh, yeah, I mean, look, we're very, very different people. Um, and as I point out in the book, though, you know, he did have this extraordinary capacity to uh, you know to be um, to be impactful in business on the strength of his personality. I didn't think in those days he would ever be a politician, but but I did see, you know, from time to time, you know, if I needed something from him, if I needed him to make a phone call to to somebody who was sick, if I needed if I needed him to do something that was, um, you know, kind of a, a, a you know a mitzvah, some some kind of good deed, um, he he would do it. And and you know, there were better, there were some better angels on his shoulder, and then there were some worse ones. And I always felt that, you know, I mean, you know, my relationship with him was was part was in part about appealing to the better angels but uh, did, did you did it present your the difference you described did it present any difficulty so to speak in building a working relationship I mean ultimately obviously you had a close one but no I mean it was was it was uh you know it, it was largely a, a professional relationship um it was one that uh, as I point out in the book I had you know uh, success in representing him, I think, beyond what uh, what I might have predicted going in, beyond what I, my capabilities probably were. I mean, I just had these outsized outcomes for him that forced a very strong bond professionally, which you know somehow uh, you know also bled into into social matters. I mean, the the most you know impactful conversation I had with him was when I was sitting shiva for my father, and he came in a blizzard to pay a shiva call, and no one else was there, so we sat and talked for an hour. And I got to know him a lot better. And, um, you know, um, uh, we had, you know, if you look at, you know, if you envision sort of concentric circles, you know, the, the overlap was, was small, but it was, it was meaningful. And, and that's where, you know, and that's where I think the relationship sat that enabled me to, uh, to, to be impactful as an ambassador. Uh, thank you. That's very interesting. So jumping ahead, um, you know, to, to his own and every for most other people's surprise, uh, Mr. Trump wins the presidency, and you ask to be appointed ambassador to Israel, and he indeed appoints you ambassador to Israel. Um, it, it was historic in any number of ways, including the fact that uh, I'm not even sure if all the cabinet secretaries have been appointed, but at the point that you were appointed the ambassador to Israel. Um, and you spend a little bit of time in your book about uh, talking about your confirmation process. Um, in opposition that you had from some elements of the Jewish community, um, and that, uh, you know, it was a very partisan environment. So, uh, almost all the Democrats, uh, save two, uh, Bob Menendez and Joe Manchin opposed you. Um, I'd be curious to know, um, you know, as you, uh, what, once you were confirmed and you were doing the work, um, did you find, um, you know, any of those um, folks who had voted against you uh, over the course of the work uh, came around, um, and even if they presumably as partisan Democrats still did not like President Trump and the administration in general, were you able to have collaborative working relationships with um, some pro-Israel Democrats uh, on the Hill? Well, I, um, I think so. I, you know, I um, uh, it, it, those those discussions would have been primarily in the context of Democrats visiting Israel. 
you know, where, where they would they would come to Israel to visit, and many many Democrats came to visit over the over the years. Look, I came to respect um, some of those who voted against me. Um, I, 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 you know, uh, very much uh, differently than I would have expected. I came I came actually to enjoy my conversations with Tim Kaine. I thought he was actually a, a very uh, uh, a, a very intelligent and perceptive guy who I thought was trying to get it right. You know, we would disagree, but I thought he wanted to get it right. Um, I'm a fan of uh, of Chris Coons. I think he's uh, he's got a good heart. His uh, his objectives are clearly to support the the state of Israel. Again, we may disagree on tactics, but in a, in a, in a civilized, uh, respectful way. Um, there, yeah, I mean, look, there's there there are some good Democrats. I I hate to paint with a uh, with a broad brush. Um, um, you know, and I had frustrations. I had frustrations when you know no Democrats accepted our invitation to come to the embassy opening. I thought that was that was a mistake, and, and certainly didn't help the cause of bipartisanship. I, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I, 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 I say this, you know, unapologetically. I'm not a fan of Chuck Schumer. I think he uh, is not who he claims to be. You know, he he claims to be the uh, Shomer Yisrael, and you know, and he's not. And um, and I uh, and I've had the uh, you know difficult experiences with him, uh, you know, from the beginning. And I'm and I, and I you know I, I find it uh, uh, you know inexcusable that he is now. You know, not contesting the you know JCPOA version two when he was clearly an opponent of it in uh, with version one and version two is going to be worse than version one. So if you didn't like if you didn't like JCPOA one, I don't know how you can stay silent on JCPOA two. So look, there yeah, there's some stark differences. Um, you know, bipartisanship is important. Uh, it's important, you know, certainly for your organization to to cultivate that and others. Um, my view is, you know, I'll, I'm not going to allow, I'm not going to die on this on the on the on the hill of bipartisanship if it means diluting my pro-Israel agenda uh, to, sufficiently to the point where you know we're no longer doing meaningful things. So that was, you know, but um, you know, politics is a is a rough and tumble game, and I I learned it. Uh, I tried to learn it quickly because I had to jump into a, a very political environment. Well, one of the things that's been interesting in the in the change of administrations is that, uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard and and, and I've heard the, the the current ambassador Tom Nides, uh, President Biden's ambassador to Israel, uh, say many times that uh, even if he might uh, disagree with you on some particular policy initiatives, and he does not disagree with you on all of the things that you pursued. Um, he, he he very quickly says that you really sent the benchmark as being an incredibly impactful uh, ambassador in terms of the record of accomplishment and uh, getting uh, so at least that kind of recognition is uh, is bipartisan so to speak. You know, I met him. I met I met Tom today for the first time. Oh. Um, I had lunch with him. To, I had lunch with him today. I never met him before. I spoke with him on the phone before. Uh, you know, all politics aside, he's a delightful guy. We had a wonderful, uh, we really had a fun lunch and, and, you know, and, and he, he totally gets my point of view and I get his point of view. And, um, you know, we, we, we said some things that I won't, you know, that are between us, but, um, but, um, you know, certainly from the perspective of, you know, is his heart in the right place? Uh, sure. He, he really wants to strengthen the U S Israel relationship. Is he going about it the same way? I would, of course not, but, you know, but, but, you know, we, we did have a good conversation. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. Um, to go, going back to, you know, while you were ambassador, there, there's a very interesting passage in your book, and I think you made some news with it. I know there were some artic news articles about it. 
about uh, a certain point at which um, you describe President Trump as having some real reservations about Prime Minister Netanyahu um, and uh, whether or not, uh, I don't have the quote in front of me, but basically President Trump says something like, I don't think Bibi is really interested in peace with the Palestinians altogether. Right. Um, and you, uh, as was reported and as in your book, you, you, you put together a mixtape, so to speak, a videotape of uh, some terrible things that the Palestinian leadership uh, said about Jews and about uh, terrorism and things like that, and that, um, and that swayed uh, President Trump's views. Um, but could could you could you maybe fill out the story a little bit more um, about uh, about that that episode? Look, you know, in the early days, this was in early 2017. Uh, I had just gotten uh, uh, appointed, and look, the truth is that you know everybody's got an opinion on Israel. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just one of those subjects that lots of people have points of view on. And somebody that was close to the president, not in government, but knew him well, you know, was, was absolutely convinced that Abu Mazen was ready to make peace. He was ready to walk away from all of Jerusalem. He was willing to give up on refugees. He was willing to minimize his uh, territorial claims. And uh, this person, I think well-meaning, said to the president, look, you're going to win a Nobel Prize here. It's, it's yours for the taking. You just got to push BB. BB's the problem. You got to push BB into making peace. Now, you know, that was a, a point of view given to the president. It, it was wrong. It was 180 degrees wrong. Abbas was not willing to do any of those things. Uh, BB was not diametrically opposed to the idea of peace. But that was that was with the president's view. And now he's coming to Israel. And I want, I want him to have the facts, at least as I perceive them. I don't want to, I'm not going to mislead him. I'm not going to tell him things that aren't true. But, you know, I wanted to be able to get to him in a relatively short amount of time, something which would show him that, you know, Abu Mazen is, in many respects, a uh, an apologist for terrorists. Uh, I would say in some respects worse than that. He's someone who uses terrorism uh, to suit his agenda. But, he, you know, he keeps it off to the side and he tries to be the good cop, but he controls the bad cops. And he was, uh, uh, he's no friend of peace and he's no uh, peacemaker. Um, I had the Israelis put together kind of a two-minute clip on on the worst things he said. I've made it clear. It's got to be intellectually honest. Nothing can be taken out of context. Nothing can be subject to multiple interpretations. And when the president came to Israel, we were in a room, and I suggested that Netanyahu play the tape, and the president saw it, and he was moved by it. The next day, he went to Bethlehem to visit Abbas, who he had already seen in Washington, and he really, uh, you know, he gave him help. He said, you know, who are you? Are you the guy that came to me in Washington, you know, like a elderly statesman, you know, wanting to make peace for your people? Are you this bloodthirsty terrorist? And by the way, why isn't Friedman here? <laughs> to which he said, well, you know, wh why did you disinvite Friedman? I mean, he, I, I, I rely on his advice. Why can't I bring him with me? And he says, well, Friedman's the ambassador to Israel. We're not in Israel right now, in Bethlehem. You know, and, 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 I, and, um, and so, and, and, and look, uh, the, the president's view changed. Um, and it, 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 it didn't change for the good or for the bad. It changed for the, for the truth. And, uh, you know, as I point out in the book, uh, a month or two later, I was in Washington, and I got my, my head chopped off by uh, Tillerson and McMaster. They were furious. You know, I didn't really understand. Secretary of State, Secretary of State Tillerson and, and, and National Security Advisor uh, McMaster. No, correct. And, you know, I don't think I, I don't think I even understood when I was, when I was doing this, how controversial it was, but, you know, they said to me, um, 
you know, this is a cheap, uh, a cheap propaganda trick to play a video for two heads of state without clearing it with the secretaries of state or the staff. I mean, how could you do that? And I said, look, I, uh, I thought the president was heading down the wrong path. I needed him to be well informed, and my job is to make, keep the president informed. And if you're not happy, I'm not. I'm sorry if you're not happy, but I don't work for you guys. I work for the president, and and that's sort of how we kind of set the the working parameters between all of us. I mean, I I work for the president. I you know I work closely with Pierre. We were colleagues, but I worked for the president. I, I had I had one I had one person to whom I was obligated, which is by the way the law. That's the way ambassadorships actually work. Yeah, uh, most ambassadors uh, kind of cower uh, in fear in the State Department, want to be want to be accepted. But you know, I work for the president, and, well, and, and look, most ambassadors don't have the direct cell phone of the president, so you had a little bit of a competitive advantage there. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 by the way, that's that that is uh, that is you know in the, the short an the, you know the short the the one sentence description of my job is I had a close relationship with the president that I was able to deploy that relationship for the for, for what I think and many people think was the good of Israel and the good of the United States without the president's support you know no matter how clever I might be or strategic I might be uh, I couldn't got I couldn't have gotten any of these things done but, but I'm curious I'm curious though you know the thought that occurred to me in reading about that episode and you describing it again about his his skepticism about BB and then watching the tape is and I and I don't mean this in a pejorative way I mean po politicians and he Mr. Trump became a politician, right? So politicians change their views and don't necessarily have, you know, firm commitments on all kinds of things, and they get swayed and moved. What What did you take away from that episode or others, if anything, about, you know, what really does Donald Trump, so to speak, believe about Israel? Look, it should make it clear that while Donald Trump has... I believe done more for Israel than any other president. Uh, Donald Trump did not run right. uh, on a pro-Israel platform. Um, he ran on a domestic platform to make America great again. It was mostly based on tax reform and closing the border, and um, uh, you know, uh, empowering uh, energy. That's was the, so. You know, I, I, you know. Let's not. You know, I don't want to overstate the case of Donald Trump's. Um, uh, you know, um, personal. Uh, 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 beliefs with regard to Israel, he had a he had a general uh, view that Israel was to be respected because of all it accomplished in a tough neighborhood, and he had a, a view that the American people, by and large, supported Israel, and he had a general view that Israel was an important ally and was on the right side of the issues that he cared about. But um, he was not someone who got up in the morning and went to sleep at night thinking, "How can I help Israel?" I mean, that's what I did. Uh, and, um, and what the, the way this clicked was I would be able to make the case to him in a way that he understood that it was good for Israel, good for America. And I, I think, you know, we had a, we had a, we had a lot of mutual trust and I had others on the team. I mean, there, you know, you know, there, whether it was Jared or, or, or Jason or, or Pompeo later on, you know, a, a very, very strong, uh, group of people working together that supported Israel as being in the best interests of the of American security and American prosperity. So um, he, he assembled a team that was very pro-Israel. He was very receptive to, to a pro-Israel agenda. But, uh, you know, where he, where he uh, uh, considered his job to be was to protecting uh, and, 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 and making more prosperous the American people. So jumping ahead, 
right? It later, so a few toward the end of the administration, when you when you all, uh, when the president unveiled the vision for peace and the proposal, um, which was which was a bold and historic proposal for a whole variety of reasons, but um, literally, right in the minutes after it was revealed, there was there was something of a there was something of a controversy, something of a split because Prime Minister Netanyahu um, understood it or was or was interpreting it as he could declare sovereignty in Judea and Samaria that day, um, and that was clearly it seemed from the accounts right that was not neither the president's view nor for that matter Jared's view. Um, so. That's am I correct in understanding right? that ties into what you were just describing, right? President Trump had some broad ideas, but he didn't have a particular view about Beitel or Ailey or anything else. Um, and no, no. So and, and, and I think and look, I think, you know, we, we had that we had that um, uh, unfortunate disconnect, which actually ended up being, I think, a fortunate, a fortunate disconnect because. Um, uh, look, I'm I mean, I'm. No secret that I, I I do believe that it's in Israel's interest to um, on its own. I mean, I, I think Israel. This is not a. This is a, I think what's best for Israel has a its longest border has for fifty some odd years, you know, been subject to no national consensus, and it's not because there isn't one. It's because they haven't sought to develop it and to and to make the case to the world. And I think Israel should be moving forward um, in, in a deliberate way to set its eastern border. Um, here we were talking about uh, Israel um, recognizing sovereignty over some some parts of Judea and Samaria in America, moving forward with it, and we we had a disconnect on the timing. Uh, I explained it in the book. It was really um, we had a different we had a different understanding as to how long it would take to do that within the inter the Israeli internal procedures. It turned out that while places like Beit El and Eli could not have been the subject of an immediate turning on the switch for internal Israeli reasons. You know, Begatai Ardain, the Jordan Valley could have been done that day. And um, and we didn't understand that it was that soon. And so it created a couple of very difficult weeks. Um, there was some friction. I think, you know, Netanyahu felt that he had one understanding. Jared felt another. I was in the middle trying to, to, to but but we got past it. I mean, the, the important thing is that not only did we get past it, but we got past it with, I think, a very, you know, a very... Uh, 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 strategic and clever way of moving forward, that we were going to move forward with the sovereignty um, agenda. But we also recognized, because as this was happening, um, we were getting, you know, the, the Saudis that had been wed to the Arab Peace Initiative, which they wrote for, for a generation, which is on one page. Also, the Saudis come out and say, this is a good plan. Even though the Palestinians want to rip it up. And the Saudis say, this is a good plan. I think America should, America should continue to supervise. Now, remember, this is a plan where, which gives, um, you know, which, in which not a single home in Yudava Shamron, not a single Jewish home, is evacuated. And not only do the Jews remain in Yudava Shamron in their communities, but they have room to expand. So, and the Saudis are saying, you know, this is a good first shot. Let's let's keep it going. The Emiratis were saying the same thing. Morocco was saying the same thing. You know, four or five countries in the EU were telling us that. So we're moving on a sovereignty program, but a lot of these countries are saying, look, we're with you. We just just slow down a little bit on the sovereignty. So we're not sure where this is all going, but we're on a path where, you know, we're either going to, you know, move forward and end up with some historical territorial recognition with regard to Judea and Samaria, 
or we're going to put it off for a while. We're not going to cancel it. We're not going to say we're not doing it, but we're going to put it off and we're going to get, you know, what became the Abraham Accords. And so, you know, um, I wasn't sure which way it was going to head, but, you know, I sort of felt we're heading in the right direction. And in the end, you know, the question is what, who's going to jump in and say, yeah, go ahead. No, I want to come back to the Abraham Accords in a minute, but, but, but just before we get to that, um, you know, I, I, I think, uh, I think it's pretty clear, and and you you said it um, that you know, a core. If you wanted to really, right, describe the approach that you all took, um, you know, leading up to that moment where you sort of transitioned to the Abraham Accords, and and in a sense, the underlying, uh, the subtitle of your book, how breaking with the past brought peace to the Middle East, is you and your colleagues um, threw out all the conventional wisdom that animated. Uh, you know, what might have been called the peace process industry in Washington for decades. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, how, what this, what the sequencing was, right? You couldn't deal with other Arab countries until you solved the Palestinian issue. That land for peace was the central issue and, and all these different things. Um, and there were many, uh, you know, the OU among them and, and many, many others who for a very long time said, you know, that's all nonsense, but um, you, you all, were able to actually be the uh, scientific experiment, so to speak, of showing that you know the alternative, the alternative hypothesis. Um, I'm curious to I'm curious to know, um, you know, there are there are some people who had been for years and years and involved in the peace process, um, who are good people and who are have some intellectual honesty. I'm I'm curious to know. You know, just like I asked you before, what happened afterwards with some of those politi Democratic politicians? Um, I would not expect everybody who had dedicated decades to the old fat, old version of the peace process to sort of say, you know, hey, you guys did some good stuff. But some folks must have, and 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 you don't need to name names. But like, what insights can you give us into? Look, some of the th th there are. There, you know, I would divide these uh, experts into two into two groups. One are the the true experts who see this as evolving and are open minded and are happy to have honest conversations. And you you could probably figure out who they are. And then there are those who are very parochial about their role and think that um, you know anybody who hasn't been doing this for thirty years has no right even you know getting into the discussion. And you know, again, the, you can just go back and look on Twitter and figure out what, you know who's who. But, um, you know, so, so we, we and, and look, we were, we brought in a bunch of people uh, who were um, involved in this um, from the past, got their thoughts. Their primary, their primary view was that, look, it's very creative, it's very, but the Palestinians are never going to take it. Okay. And we knew that anyway. So, I mean, that wasn't really a, much of a, of a newsflash for us. We knew the Palestinians weren't going to take it. Why did we do it anyway? Did it anyway for a couple of reasons. Number one, we demonstrated that the Israelis want peace. We demonstrated that the Israelis are willing to give up territory for peace. We also de demonstrated that you'd have to be crazy to make peace with the Palestinians until they reform. I mean, I ask my friends on the left all the time, the Palestinian Authority, forget about Hamas, which everybody agrees. I mean, no one has an answer to Hamas right now, right? Which is obviously a massive impediment to, to any peace deal with the Palestinians. Palestinian Authority has no real system of justice. They will, it's, it's, it's a capital offense if you broker a sale of land from a uh, Arab to a Jew, they have um, they they are um, extraordinarily misogynistic. They outlaw um, homosexuality is illegal in the Palestinian Authority. I tell my friends on the left, 
you want to put your fingerprint on that Palestinian state? I mean, is that really what you want to work so hard to do to, to create a palette? I mean, so the difference between, I think, the left and the right on this, and it's not just me versus, you know, Martin Indyk, but it's, you know, we actually see things for what they are and not for, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't do aspirational plans and put people's lives at risk based upon a naked promise that things will be better. I mean, we understand you can't do that. So, you know, we don't believe in, you know, gadgets and gizmos along the Jordan Valley, you know, to warn Israelis in the event of a, an attack from the East when every military, you know, person that I know says Israel's got to be in the Jordan Valley to defend itself. We don't, um, we, we, we don't give the Palestinians a free pass when, um, when, when they have no system of justice and the likelihood is that they're going to make, they're going to continue to be corrupt and make their people so miserable that there'll be a revolution and somebody else will come in. You know, we want to know who we're dealing with. You know, we don't think of Abu Mazen. We think Abu Mazen's, you know, not long for this world and somebody else will come in. So we just sort of recognize the realities and we recognize, you know, primarily that they, you know, that the Palestinians have no ability to control Hamas, that they're, they're, they're corrupt, um, they're, they're tribal, they're not unified. And so um, Israel can, and is really in this part, unlike, you know, with Gaza, where, I mean, it was a huge mistake to get out, but it wasn't, it wasn't an existential mistake. Israel does not have a margin of error in Judea and Samaria. It makes a mistake and gives over this territory to the wrong people. It, it, it gets cut in half. So that's just, you know, that's just the way we look at it. I mean, we will never ask Israel to, to take risks that no other, you know, country would take with regard to its own people. And, you know, the, uh, the, the elites would like to, um, you know, they, they, there's this great, you know, they all say, well, you know, you make peace with your enemies, not with your friends. And, you know, my response is, yeah, you, but you make peace with your former enemies, not your current enemies. Your current enemies, you, you defeat. Your former enemies, you can make peace with. And right now, there, there, there are no former enemies right now uh, to make peace with. They're all, they're all still enemies. Um, it is, and, and, and I would just add, I, I mean, we jumped over it, but, uh, the historical relocation of the embassy to Jerusalem, you know, uh, was also a, a critical step in blowing up, dare I use that term, uh, the, the conventional wisdom, you know, that, uh, for decades folks had said, oh, that will, that'll inflame the Middle East and so on and so forth. And, uh, and, and importantly, it showed that, um, you know, it, it didn't motivate the Palestinians to, to, to move off of where they're at, but it showed that, you know, they just can't sit on their hands and not, and not lose things, um, and wait for somebody else to deliver what they want on a silver platter with no concessions whatsoever. I think it was the most important thing we did. And, you know, we get most of our credit we get for the Abraham Accords and happy to take credit wherever it comes, but. Uh, it all got set in motion when we moved the embassy. Um, we called we called the Palestinians bluff. They they you know people thought that they could set the world on fire. Well, they they didn't set the world on fire. Nobody was interested in uh, in following the Palestinians into battle here. Um, and for one really significant reason, because everybody knows that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It wasn't like we were it wasn't like we were making this up. You know, I mean, people are stupid. They know Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, both historically. Uh, both, uh, you know, biblically and, 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 and practically in terms of how Israel runs its government. So uh, doing that, um, you know, it, it, people saw, first of all, it, it became incredibly uh, popular domestically, and people noticed that. Um, the, um, the, the, the Palestinians, um, the veto was broken, and, and everybody in the sun came up the next morning. And, um, and so from there, we had two things going for us. We had 
we had domestic politics um, was now being proven to be very pro-Israel, at least among the people that voted for the president. And um, and more important, um, people still. You mentioned, mentioned the embassy move in in rally speeches where there were probably not there were not many Jews present. <laughs> there were not many Jews present. You know, I remember one in particular, Evanston, Indiana. I mean, twenty thousand people. I, I doubt there were five Jews. Biggest applause line. The biggest applause line was the moving the embassy. And then and then and then the and then the other thing was you know we started to show the world, the region in particular, that, you know, America can be trusted, you know, America could be a really, really good friend to its allies in the region. And, you know, the UAE recognized, I mean, the UAE is never going to have a relationship with the U.S. like it has, like the U.S. has with Israel. But the UAE says, you know what, we want to have that relationship too, where we're, where we're a trusted ally, where we join this this circle of, of, of not just common interests, but real trust and and uh and and reliability and you know and bahrain came in and the saudis are not there yet they they, they will be um i mean assuming assuming you know if we were still in power they, they would be and of course you know you fly from tel aviv to uh abu dhabi 90 percent of the flights over saudi airspace which was unthinkable two years ago so um it, it was really um it was really you know what we showed um to to our you know gulf allies was that the relationship between the United States and Israel can be scaled beyond just the U.S. and Israel, with you know, with with a common level of trust, and that really more than anything is what what what, what led to uh, the Abraham Accords. You know, uh, the, these other countries wanted to be like Israel; they wanted to be with Israel in this you know in this uh, relationship with the United States. So, so of course, right? The the um, the Abraham Accords are are also historic, and um, you know the. Uh, I know the UAE ambassador in particular likes to talk about how, you know, the work on their bilateral relationship has has you know not slowed down at all. The relationship is getting deeper and wider. I'm sure that's true with the other countries as well, you know. But every everybody wants to know, okay, so who's next? Um, and um, you're 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 not in government at the moment, but you're a close observer of these things. And and what what insight could you give us in terms of? And and by the way. To be, the Biden administration has said, "We we love the Abraham Accords. We want to expand the circle. Also, okay. um, presumably they're a little bit preoccupied right now with Ukraine and some other things. Uh, to be fair, but um, what, what what do you see uh, from your vantage point of you know who and potentially when other countries might join the Abraham Accord circle? Well, you know, Nathan, right now I, th- I think right now nobody's next, and the reason nobody's next is because." Um, of the way we're approaching Iran, um, the um, I think the Saudis are furious. I think the Emiratis are furious. I mean, they won't come out and say it, but you know what I'm hearing from people is, I mean, and I think the Israelis are uh, the Israelis can't be as furious because of the relationship that the Israeli government has with the U.S. government. So they're gonna they're gonna try to be more, um, you know, they're, they're gonna try to figure out how to get through this thing. But you know, giving uh, you know, look, I. Giving Iran two hundred billion dollars is just an unthinkable outcome right now. But they will they will not use that money to build schools and build hospitals. And um, what the Biden administration has now signaled to the world is, you know, if you're a nuclear power, we're just we're just not going to get in your way. Um, you know, that's the that's really the the message of Ukraine, right? 
Um, I don't want to start World War III. Well, you know, the America, America's not going to get into World War III if it provides arms to Ukraine unless it provokes Russia to use nuclear weapons, even tactical nuclear weapons. And so the message, which is a ridiculous message, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just frustrated uh, you know, beyond words, but the message that Biden is now giving the world is, look, if you're a NATO country and Article 5 is invoked, you know, the United States will honor its pledge. By the way, I don't believe it. I don't believe the United States is going to war for Estonia or for Romania. I don't believe it, but that's what Biden is saying. But if you're not a NATO country uh, and Article 5 is not invoked, we don't want to provoke World War III, which means that any country that, that attacks any of our allies that has nuclear capabilities, we're going to sit it out, or we're going to, or we're going to, we're going to impose some sanctions or provide some weapons, you know, maybe. But we're not, we're not going to war anymore. And that, and, and that message is, um, a, it's telling every country you're on your own, including Israel. And it is, um, uh, in terms of the Abraham Accords, like the Abraham Accords, in every case, every deal was different. But you always had Israel and a country that it was normalizing with at the base of the triangle with the United States at the apex. Now, the United States would be doing different things with each country at the apex, whether it was, you know, whether it was giving, you know, military assurances, giving uh, diplomatic assurances, uh, you know, Sudan taking them off the terror. I mean, all kinds of things that were all appropriate in each case, but the U.S. was an active participant. You know, these were all new relationships, and the United States had to nurture them and be active in them. Um, and one of the factors was the fact that everybody was opposed to Iran. And... Uh, and, and we trusted, you know, all these countries, including Israel, trusted the United States that it would be opposed to Iraq. <laughs> so where we are today, I don't know where it's going. I mean, I hear different things about whether they're close or not or what. You know, I think the Russian war has made it much more complicated. But um, um, we, 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 this is a, um, you know, going back into JCPOA2 will make it much harder to scale the Abraham Accords. I hope it's temporary. I hope there's no deal. I hope it's temporary. But, but that, that's... Now, now, had we still been in power, you know, Saudi Arabia was was by far the the big fish. They're the you know custodians of the uh, of the of the Muslim holy sites. I think you can you know you'll make the case they're the leader of the Muslim world. You know, that would have I think really in a meaningful way brought an end to the Arab-Israeli conflict as we have known it historically. Uh, and I think that'll still happen, but I think we're just just going to take some more time. I don't think it's happening um, in the current environment. I just don't think the uh, the U.S. is providing enough assurances to these countries to get there. But I hope it changes. Um, do you, do you, um, just, uh, we just have a couple minutes left and, and I've tried to weave some questions that we got submitted ahead of time into, into my questions to you. Um, I'm curious to know, you know, um, you know, going back to what the conventional wisdom was before your administration. So, um, you know, it wasn't only Democrats administrations that pursued the peace process and the two-state solution and so on and so forth, right? George W. Bush had his Annapolis conference, George H. W. Bush convened Madrid, so on and so forth. Um, where do you see, uh, let's put aside the question of whether or not Donald Trump is going to run for president again, I don't want to get into that, but, uh, you know, where do you see, uh, as as someone who is who served in a Republican administration and is involved um, in Republican political and policy circles, where do you, do you think that the your the Trump administration's approach has changed the trajectory of the Republican Party with regard to policy toward Israel and the Middle East in general, um, such that whoever comes next is is going to be operating in a different framework than 
what came before the Bushes and Reagan, et cetera. Yes, and I, and I and I think that's the that's one of the uh, side benefits of the peace plan that we put out because it is the only plan that has ever received the you know really unqualified endorsement of the Israeli security establishment as well as the as well as Prime Minister Netanyahu. So why wouldn't you start there? In other words, you know you could, you could make up something else that everybody's going to hate, but why not start with something that at least you know. Without, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's things that have to be changed, but why not start from a place where your most important ally in the Middle East says, I'm willing to negotiate on this basis? I mean, to throw that out is crazy. Because first of all, you know, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on that many things. I am absolutely an expert on Israeli politics. I know where the country can go. I know where the Israeli people can go. Okay. We all saw what happened in 2005 in, in Gaza, almost a civil war evacuating 8,000 people from a remote part of the country. Mm -hmm. You're not gonna. You're not gonna get a hundred thousand Jews to leave the biblical heartland of the state of Israel or more to not leave it. They're not going, and Israel should not expose itself to that type of internal political turmoil. So let's start with what we got. We, yeah, we, we got something that kind of makes sense. I mean, the Palestinians will have a bigger footprint. They'll have at, they'll have you know a much better economy. They'll have infrastructure. They'll have a state in a in a hypothetical sense. They won't control their security or their airspace. Or the electromagnetic spectrum, you know, or their borders, but they'll have as much, you know, as uh, this is Netanyahu's line. They'll have as much uh, autonomy as does not threaten the state of Israel, and that's what this plan provides. And why not start there? And I think the Republicans are prepared to, to go there. I mean, everyone I talk to, and I talk to lots of you know potential future presidents, that th this is what makes sense to them. You know, I mean, you want to call it a state? It's not a state. I mean, it's not a state as we as we. You know, think of a state, but you know, you want to have something realistic, which gives the Palestinians more and better life without threatening Israel. This is this is the plan, and I think a lot of Republicans will embrace it in the future. Um, well, uh, it's been great talking with you. Uh, I don't know if you want to close out with any topics we have not touched on, um, uh, but uh, I'll give you a chance to do that. Well, look, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give up the opportunity. First of all, to say thank you for um, you know uh, I, I was a I was a, I was a lightning rod you know among American Jews and uh, you know some organizations uh, you know were were supportive and I you know and some weren't and, and those that were supportive I deeply appreciate the support. It's not like you know it's not like I live on an island. I I I needed it at times and I was happy to have it. So thank you for the support I got over the four years that I was in office. The second thing, you know, uh, Nathan, you know, you're, you're, you've been doing this a long time. Uh, we're, we're, I think we're, we're approaching a fairly precarious point in the, um, both, you know, in the internal, in, in internal Jewish life in America, uh, both because of the physical threats that we're facing and because of the uh, assimilation that is rampant in the universities that will not, you know, present Israel uh, fairly. Uh, and of course, we have all these, you know, issues around the world that we didn't have last year. Um, just be, you know, to, to you and everyone who's listening, and I mean, be active. I mean, this is this is not the time to take a uh, take a snooze. Be active. I mean, I I endorse. I mean, I think I endorse all your points of view, and and, and I and I'm, I'm happy that you're uh, you're active and, and engaged. And I, I want to wish you uh, great luck, great great success moving forward. Because again, the 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 OU needs to be heard right now. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll, I'll use that for, as an opportunity to plug uh, for those who are on 
Well, you're probably on because you got our email invitation to this, but uh, if not, go to advocacy.ou.org and sign up for our action alerts and uh, and be involved in, in all of our work, both in support of Israel's security and welfare and also on key domestic policy issues. Um, uh, as, as the host, I will, I will also say Sledgehammer is still available, uh, wherever you get uh, your books. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a good read and, uh, really appreciate, uh, David, uh, ambassador David Friedman for, for joining us this afternoon. Um, and wish you all a great day and, uh, Erev Tobin, Yerushalayim to you. Uh, Thank you so much. Take care. It's good to be with you. Thank you.